Hello friends, welcome to Season 3 of White Collar Crimes, the podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. I'm Ryan Horn, your host, so glad to have you aboard for another season. Hope you've had a nice couple weeks off from our last podcast. We're glad to keep this going and have you aboard, have hopefully another successful season exposing crimes that don't always get a lot of exposure, you know, from the news media and just the general public in general. We're glad to have you aboard. You know, Iowa's not a place you would expect to have a white-collar crime story. Uh, In fact, I don't think we've had any uh, in that location here. Nice state. It's a neighboring state to me, actually. But, you know, like Illinois here, once you get outside of Chicago, Iowa, you know, is mostly like Illinois, farming state, you know, farm a lot of corn, soy, things like that. And Not somewhere you would expect uh, a lot of white-collar crime activity. But, as you have seen and heard on this podcast, white-collar crimes happen, you know, from all different parts of the country and even world for that matter and committed by all ages, races, sizes. You know, we just recently had one uh, on the Cherry Hill Spats gentleman that was uh, in the neighborhood of around 700 pounds. You know, so uh, they happen all all different walks of life pull these off. And this is what would happen in this situation. This was a white-collar crime scheme, if you could say that, or, you know, for lack of better words, it was started by a family kosher-owned slaughterhouse in Postville, Iowa, really tiny town there in Iowa. And it would become kind of a startling location for what was about to unfold, especially for federal immigration authorities, as they would later find out uh, when they raided the warehouse or the slaughterhouse and found some absolutely deplorable working conditions, among other types of crimes committed. But as I said, Postville is a really small town in northeastern Iowa, about 2,000 people or so, and, uh, you know, not a place that you would expect a, a lot of probably crime of any kind, you know, generally smaller towns like that, you know, kind of like the one I live in for the most part, are a lot more peaceful and quiet than the larger cities, so not somewhere you'd expect a lot of crime, but the Brooklyn-based, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, Rubashkin family, they turned this location into a kosher meat-producing warehouse. And since Americans usually don't like to, you know, work a lot of times in slaughterhouses and really tough jobs like that, it's not uncommon for a business like this to have to hire, you know, foreign labor, and in this case, though, this was mostly illegal immigrant uh, employees that they took in, but a lot of Americans generally are not drawn to do jobs at these type of locations, so that's, it's not uncommon. There's a, you know, factory, you know, about an hour or so from where I'm from here, and they employ a lot of immigrants. Of course, they have been busted also for, you know, employing illegals and things like that, so... So they pick out this location to produce a lot of kosher meats, and they were, you know, a powerhouse in this business. And when they employed a lot of these immigrants, that kind of changed the landscape of the town. It didn't take much, you know, a town of 2,000. You start importing, you know, a few dozen immigrants here and there, or maybe a few hundred or something like that. It can really change the landscape of a town really quickly. And uh, this was something that certainly, you know, the residents took notice of, and certainly changed the landscape and the way things were done in town. But it's again, it's not uncommon for immigrants to be employed at these kind of places, but 
employing illegal immigrants in a place like this is illegal, you know. And the problem that many of them run into and why there, many of these illegals are taken advantage of like they were with this family is because if the conditions are not up to par, they're not likely to report it because they don't want to risk being exposed and being deported. And, you know, even though the conditions are horrid by American standards, it's quite possible they're not horrid by the standards from the countries that they came from. So they're still willing to, you know, tough it out and deal with what they have to here just to get away from, you know, whatever they've tried to escape from their home countries. And this allows families like the Rubashkins to, you know, exploit them for financial gain. You know, they're willing to stay here and work cheaply and, you know, put up with things that uh, American citizens certainly most likely would not put up with, at least not very many of them. So they can make a huge profit by cheaply employing people that, uh, one, you know, do not have legal status to be here, and two, are not likely to report, you know, gross human and work code violations. And this does differ somewhat from a lot of the other white-collar crimes that we have covered on this podcast, because here you don't necessarily have an element of trust, at least not strongly like you do with the others. You know, as I've pointed out on here, that's often one of the key components of a white-collar crime. You have a violation of trust, so to speak. There's, there's some element of trust. The victim had to, in some way, entrust the, the perp with some type of uh, financial trust, mostly that is later exploited or abused. But here, I think it's not so much these illegal immigrants trusted this family or other families that take advantage of them like this. It's just the fact, out of desperation, they're willing to overlook a lot of things and and be used and exploited just to actually be here. So uh, it's not so much I think these uh, illegal immigrants that were employed here trusted this family or, you know, others like them, but just a matter they did out of survival were willing to tolerate and put up a lot of things. So that is kind of an element in this crime that's not always present in a lot of other white-collar crimes. But you know, this is a completely different case from a lot of the ones we've had before. We haven't had any we've covered before. In a little small town in Iowa, you know, in a kosher slaughterhouse located kind of in the middle of nowhere. This is certainly an unusual case, which there is a story on this. I believe it was on American Crimes. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that was, uh, or I mean, uh, American Greed. But uh, I know there have been some documentaries on there about it, and there's certainly a lot of, you know, YouTube videos and things of that sort if you want to follow up and see a little bit on this case. But they were exploited for, you know, their labor for profit illegally. And in addition to low wages, the workers were exposed to very hazardous and unsanitary conditions. In fact, the conditions were so filthy that many would question if it would actually meet kosher standards in the first place. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't know completely all the things that are involved in kosher, you know, procedures and qualifications, but I know there are very stringent guidelines that have to be met in order to have the stamp of approval for it being kosher. You know, it's not just uh, any type of uh, process can do. I know one of the key components of the kosher process is that, you know, the animal doesn't suffer unduly. And, you know, they're very clean and uh, even from the cutting instruments and things like that that have to be followed. And since the conditions in this slaughterhouse were shown to be just very, very filthy and unsafe, it most likely did not meet kosher standards, even though at the time they were had grown so large and powerful, they were the nation's number one uh, producer of kosher meats. 
But things are not always as they seem. Because as I said, even though the family was raking in millions, some were starting to bring to light the horrid conditions that were in this slaughterhouse. The animal rights group PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, exposed them with a video of a cattle staggering about in obvious pain and having their throats slashed and trachea removed. Now they defended these rights or these procedures and techniques as religious practice, but they did finally uh, concede and admit to making some changes. Now, as I said a little bit ago, you know, the animal not suffering uh, unduly or, you know, unnecessarily suffering is a key part of, you know, the kosher process with meat. That, uh, you know, you have to take extra gentle care to make sure the animal doesn't suffer any. And, you know, PETA exposed that was not the case in this slaughterhouse as they exposed with some of these cattle. They were suffering beyond just a normal conventional uh, slaughter process, you know, so they were, you know, kind of extra suffering tacked on than what they would have in a non-kosher slaughterhouse. But, you know, once they were caught and exposed this, they finally did concede that it wasn't right, and they did agree to make some changes, but nonetheless, it was only uh, mostly lip service, as we'll see in a little bit. As we will see here shortly in a little bit, but the big exposure came when federal immigration authorities raided, which was, again, probably the largest kosher slaughterhouse in the country, and they rounded up 400 illegal immigrants, mostly from Guatemala. At the time, this was probably the, considered one of the biggest raids in one day in our uh, country's history as far as immigration policy is concerned. And once this was all brought to light, in addition to having you know the community and the federal government and a lot of other people like that on their tail, this also brought considerable criticism from some local labor organizations, which, you know, many labor unions and labor rights organizations, they accuse them of exploiting the workers and hiring even illegal teenagers to work on the factory floor uh, doing labor that was not permissible by federal labor laws. But they were doing that and even exploiting that, you know, for a buck and for some profit. And this also brought some more light on their son and the family and the son, Aaron Rubashkin, or Rubashkin, I'm sorry, uh, who had just a few earlier was found out he served 15 months in federal prison for bank fraud. So, you know, the family, people began to kind of see a little bit of the light on that. Maybe they weren't all on the up and up and what they were supposed to be, and maybe we need to kind of Take a look at who we've got here in our backyard as our neighbor because uh, things were not always quite what they seemed to be in this case. And they found out that uh, not all of them were on the up and up and, you know, committed and produced honest business. As I said, this was a huge raid. I mean, 400 uh, illegal immigrants in a, working in a slaughterhouse in one raid is a pretty big deal. And, you know, in a town of four, or I'm sorry, in a town of 2,000 people, that's especially something that's going to be startling to not only the locals, but, you know, going to bring attention probably nationwide as it did. And uh, two years after this raid, so we're talking about 2011 here at this point, uh, this brought such negative attention on them and affected such of their business that uh, they were forced into bankruptcy. Because as I said, too, not just the labor conditions. You know, they got heat from the community, from the federal government and labor organizations, but even a lot of Jewish groups 
were critical of this group because of, as I said before, the filthy and unsanitary conditions most likely could not meet kosher standards, yet they were producing, you know, large amounts of meat with the kosher seal of approval on it, stating that it had met all standards and, you know, had the seal of approval for meeting the kosher uh, process, which clearly most likely was not being done. So this hurt their business and it did force them into uh, bankruptcy. Now the family matriarch and ringleader, Shalom Rubishakin, he was sentenced to 27 years for a variety of financial crimes. Uh, 86 total counts, in fact. I mean, that's a lot. Uh, and 27 years is a lot for a white-collar crime, as you know, because as I've pointed out tons of times on this podcast, and will just about seems like every episode, it fits somewhere, people don't always, when they're commit, convicted of white-collar crimes, they don't always get punished like they should. And, uh, you know, they oftentimes just don't, uh, don't have justice done. Um, sometimes later there's justice done in civil court, you know, where families sue and they get financial backing out of it and get some money out of it and compensation in that regard. But most of the time they get pretty light sentences. But 27 years uh, for a white collar crime is a pretty hefty sentence. And uh, this sparked a lot of outrage. And there were some Jewish communities, even though they were critical of the kosher process and things that he was involving in his slaughterhouse, they were very critical of this sentence because uh, they felt this was very excessive for a nonviolent offense and first-time offender, which honestly, when you look at it, probably is the case. I mean, most of the time, somebody doesn't always get that much of a sentence, you know, the first time around, especially for a nonviolent crime. I mean, we had... Stuart Parnell from the Peanut Corporation of America, we did a podcast on that last year, and, you know, he got a large sentence, but, you know, that was because, you know, his company, the Salmonella Poisoning, they sent peanuts out that they knew were tainted and unhealthy and and unsafe, and, you know, led to about nine deaths, I think. Got a pretty hefty sentence, and that's that's completely understandable, but in this case, I don't know that there were any deaths or anything like that reported, other than massive... uh, exploitation of illegal immigrants and you know and they and endangering their lives i mean certainly working in very unsafe and unhazard conditions i mean the conditions reported in this were extremely filthy and unsafe and you know that happens a lot of times in these that was also the case in the peanut corporation of america their factories were found to be very filthy and you know they were paying americans basically minimum wage to work there and you know very safe and unhealthy conditions and that's what we found in this case also. But yeah, I would have to say that is kind of unusual, although, you know, we don't know the extent to what he did exploit in these 86 uh, counts. That's a lot of counts for financial crime. So you tally that all up, that is going to get somebody a decent amount of time. But yeah, I would say usually 27 years would not be what I would have expected either. But that's, uh, that is what he ended up with. So... So, Shalom would appeal the sentence, but a federal appeals court in St. Louis would deny his appeal. So, you know, he did appeal this lengthy sentence, but the appeals court in St. Louis was not interested in hearing anything on his behalf or, you know, why. So, they basically upheld his sentence, which, to my knowledge to this day, is being, you know, played out as we speak. And normally the story would end here after, you know, his failed appeal and he, uh would just continue to do his time and 
you know, maybe a discussion about if there's a possibility he'll get out at his advanced age. I doubt that's going to happen. And then, you know, we always have the issue we talk about on this show is whether they will get out and reoffend and exploit somebody again. Uh, not likely to be the case on here, but uh, we will certainly be able to see. And uh, not likely he will, but, you know, you never know, I guess. But the story doesn't quite end here. Um, the Ruben, uh, I'm sorry, the Rubishakin family, they, uh, their company was known as Agroprocessors, and they sold this com- uh, the company to AgriStar. Now, the hope was from the local community that, you know, they would change the things that were being done, you know, probably the, you know, employment processes and the sanitation processes and things like that that they were doing. But uh, that wasn't the case. And uh, some claim that AgriStar was uh, involved also in much inhumane slaughter, still claiming that to this day, to my knowledge, that they're still uh, continuing many of the practices and methods and things that were done by agro-processors. And, you know, that's still catching some, some outrage and criticism from, you know, the local community and probably PETA and some of the others. So uh, who knows if much will change on that. Now, there hasn't been any report that I know of of them, you know, exploiting immigrant labor or illegal immigrants or anything like that. But, uh, you know, only time will tell. And who knows? We, uh, we may end up doing a podcast on them as well. So uh, just kind of have to stay tuned on that. And speaking of podcasts, uh, we are going to take a look if uh, anyone out there, if you want to maybe even expand upon white collar crimes and maybe even do some episodes on, uh, you know, serial killers or just other types of street crimes. We are interested in getting feedback in that. Uh, some have mentioned that to me about maybe expanding a little bit just beyond white collar crime. Uh, that's completely up to you, the listeners. If you uh, have an idea for that or for a show, as I always say, you can email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. You can message me on the anchor page that hosts this podcast. Uh, Also a donation button on there if you want to donate to us and help us keep going. That's always a a big help. Um, And also, you know, you can hire me for voiceover work. I am involved in that. In fact, I'm narrating a couple of audio books right now that will be coming out soon. And uh, you can also contact me, you know, at my email there or, you know, contact me on my website, ryan-horn.com. Make sure you also follow us on the Facebook page for changes and updates on episodes and things of that sort. We like to keep you all in the loop of what's going on with that and uh, hopefully keep this going. I mean, the main focus of this show would remain white collar crimes because that's what it is. But if anyone out there would like a special episode once in a while on something else uh we certainly would be glad to to do that just to kind of shake things up and keep things a little interesting um and you know that's up to you the listener that will determine that so uh yes please be sure and give us our feedback that we need and hopefully you tune in next week we will have a story that's you know a lot of you are probably familiar with uh, a lot going on with the irs right now and you know a lot of controversy with them and sometimes uh People have had unfortunate clashes with them, not just uh, everyday middle Americans or whatnot, but uh, sometimes rich and powerful celebrities do. And we're going to cover the case of actor Wesley Snipes and his clash with the IRS and what happened uh, when he got involved in, you know, what was basically white-collar crime. So that's going to be an episode coming up next week. 
So we're so glad to have you here in this season and kicking off another one. I sincerely want to thank any of you that listened to even just one podcast during our last season and helped keep this going. And our audience is growing. We're getting more downloads and uh, getting downloads all over the world, which is really awesome. And we're glad to have you a part of that. And as I always say, you know, reach out to your local pet shelter and help adopt or, you know, foster one or donate financially. Anything you can do like that to help. And watch out for each other. Watch out for financial exploitations. Uh, I believe there's going to be a lot going on about student loans right now. Um, I've gotten some calls from, I think, some fraudulent spam calls about trying to get, you know, something done with your student loans. They're going to be taking advantage of that. So watch out for your friends and family. And as I always say, especially watch out for your elderly friends and family because they are the ones that are most victimized by these types of crimes. So keep an eye out for each other. And uh, on this show, we'll continue to shine the light and keep exploiting and showing these types of crimes and give people the justice they deserve. So God bless. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you all next time.